Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for one in a series of podcasts that document three days of workshops on the study of the Enneagram, with panels exploring the different personality types. This episode is an introduction to day three of the Enneagram panel workshop series. So welcome to all to the third and final day-long workshop with Beatrice Chestnut on Enneagram. We're doing the five, six, and seven panels today. And uh, I will be on the five panel, so I'm I'm both looking forward and not looking forward. (laughs) Is it over yet? Which is completely normal. And um, just a few reflections, and then Beatrice is going to uh, answer some general questions that you may have before the panels start. Um, I simply want to say how extraordinary it's been for me personally to be uh, part of these uh, three day-long workshops. And um, Beatrice and I are talking about and hoping to continue to work together. Yes. And we'd like to make this an ongoing part of our work at Commonweal. So, um, and I feel that what we've been doing collectively is, is creating an energetic body uh, that is deeply receptive to this work. And that um, each of us, I think it's fair to say, I won't speak for you, but I'll speak for myself, I'm benefiting greatly. Um, I spent about 20 years with people recommending Enneagram to me. And I looked at it and I just couldn't make any sense of it for literally at least 20 years, probably 30 years. And then one day about three years ago, for whatever reason, it just opened up to me and I've just been absorbed in it ever since. But I have a lot, what that means is I have a lot of compassion for people who absolutely don't get it. Because I, didn't, <laughs> I, I didn't get it for a really long time. And I have been somebody who's studied archetypal psychologies for literally, um, uh, what, uh, 50 years. So, um, so I have just deep compassion uh, and without any judgment for the fact that this isn't for everyone. You know, and that's just fine. In fact, there are reasons, I think, that it was a uh, esoteric secret teaching for a very long time. Uh, how many people do we know that respond to this by saying, I don't like to be put in a box or I don't like to be categorized or something like that? That's a very common and understandable response. So, um, I'm not necessarily someone who believes that one should proselytize for anything. You know, I think uh, at best to make it usefully visible um, so that people can find it if they seek it. Or um, the way Gurdjieff did it, uh, Gurdjieff is one of the sources of what we know about the Enneagram symbol, and he taught uh, in the early part of the 20th century in Russia and then France, 
And he actually used to make it hard to find his meetings. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. It was like it, it, the, 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 uh, the directions would be uh, confused on purpose uh, because he wanted to make it even a challenge. So I completely agree with you that it's not about proselytizing, uh, that people come to it or they don't. Um, but even he even took it a step further. And so sometimes if it's a little bit of a challenge to get there, I think that maybe that's okay because... And what yeah. better place than Bellino? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it's what I love about this. It's like, okay, if you're going to drive right. over the windy roads, right. potentially in the rain, in the winter, then right. maybe uh, maybe you're ready for the inner work. <laughs> and guess what? There's no sign for Bolinas, right? That's There's right. no sign on right. Highway 1 to tell you how to get here. And then... Getting to Common Rail is yet a further adventure. There keep being more signs of the the, uh, auspiciousness of this union. (laughs) No, I'm really thrilled that Beatrice and I uh, have done this together and are exploring more work because, you know, I deeply believe um, that Beatrice does, by any account, some of the deepest and most interesting Enneagram work that's being done anywhere today and uh, so it's a real honor uh, to work with you mm-hmm. so it's an honor to be here with working with you so with that i will turn it over to beatrice to answer some questions and then uh, we'll start uh, the first panel a little early would it be okay if i asked you one question yeah, before sure. you go away yeah. um I was really struck by the fact that you said you've been studying archetypal, you know, psychology for 50 years. Mm-hmm. So my question for you is, given that all that you must know about this field and all that you've studied and taught, um, where, where do you think the Enneagram fits into all that? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll say just a few words, some of which I might have saved for later, but it's this is a good place to say some of them. Um, My father was a a political theorist and um, sort of co-creator of the field of modern American studies. And my mother was a psychologist. And so um, I grew up on Freudian and neo-Freudian psychology uh, from early on. And then at uh, both Harvard and Yale, I studied psychology and politics. My father was politics. My mother was psychology. And Commonweal is about healing ourselves and healing the earth, which is about psychology and politics. Mm. So these two dimensions of the inner and the outer have been with me uh, from the start. Uh, And when I was undergraduate at Harvard and graduate student at Yale, and I really um, studied the developmental psychologists, Eric Erickson, Jean Piaget, and Lawrence Kohlberg, and uh, all the, and, you know, figured out how Erickson and Piaget and Kohlberg all worked together in terms of developmental phases. And um, then in graduate school at Yale, my mentor, uh, my thesis was on, uh, both as an undergraduate and a graduate, was on psychology and politics. And so that was the beginning. And I had five years of, of Freudian daily psychoanalysis. Wow. In fact, I was thinking of becoming a lay analyst. Wow. Um, and then I became the recording secretary for the Wellfleet Psychohistorical Conference, which is where Eric Erickson and Robert Lifton and uh, Kai Erickson and um, uh, my mentor, Kenneth Keniston, and a whole bunch of the psychohistorians uh, 
gathered. And for two summers, or maybe even three, I was their recording secretary. So that was before I came out here. And then and when I came out here in uh, uh, 1972 um, on a sabbatical from teaching at Yale, I never went back. I stayed out here. Um, I began to discover um, uh, Jung and uh, Buddhism and, um, and the deeper... I don't know, I want to say deeper, but in some senses deeper transpersonal archetypal psychologies. And when I met Rachel Naomi Remen, our medical director, she had studied psychosynthesis. Mm. And so I really immersed myself in psychosynthesis. So psychosynthesis and Jungian psychology, and then James Hillman and the archetypal psychologists who uh, worked around James Hillman's work. And we have a whole set of new school conversations, both around Hillman's work and Angelus Arian and Rachel Raman and uh, a whole set of others. Um, so that's the kind of prelude to the answer to your question. And then I came to see uh, astrology and Tarot and I Ching as archetypal psychologies. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and the big question that I actually asked you at the beginning of the last session that I still wrestle with is, for me, uh, Enneagram, which as we know, we've said it before, it tracks perfectly with the Kabbalistic tree of life perfectly with seven uh, deadly sins of Christianity plus two that got lost, uh, closely with Dante's circles of hell, closely with the diagnostic psychiatric manual today, and perfectly with the lands Odysseus visits on his way home from Troy in the same order as the Enneagram, all of which says to me that these nine personality types have been constants in both Athens and Jerusalem in the Western traditions of um, Athenian, Greek, and uh, Abrahamic traditions for thousands of years, and that they continue to be recognized in the Diagnostic Psychiatric Manual today, although I don't think perfectly. Mm -hmm. So that part feels very real to me. And so for me, of all the archetypal <coughs> psychologies, it doesn't have the breadth and depth and richness for me, of Jungian uh, psychology uh, or Hellman psychology in a certain sense, in the, in the sense of the breadth of topics that they cover. Mm. But it has the essence, um, and it has more predictive, uh, I don't want to say predictive, more explanatory power than any other archetypal psychology I've studied. So the question that I continue to hold is how is it that when in Enneagram you discover your type and you have this, this is awesome, how can that also be true of astrology, which is based on a birth date? And unless you believe, which it's possible to believe, that birth dates actually do synergistically predict who you are, if you see, uh, if you see astrology as a random uh, uh, association, with birthday that evokes a pattern within us that we re come to recognize because the archetype has so much power, mm -hmm. which would make sense in terms of I Ching and Tarot, 
that those are, unless you believe in total synergy, that those are random. So these archetypes have the capacity to evoke and consolidate within us a story or an interpretation of ourselves that deeply makes sense to us. So for me, what is different about Enneagram than Tarot uh, and, uh, and astrology and I Ching is that it's not randomly assigned, that you get to look and determine which one is deepest for you. Mm. Uh, and so the question I hold is, to what degree is that sense of recognition that you can get with astrology, I Ching, or Tarot actually what happens when you look at, um, at, when you look at Enneagram? Um, and my own feeling is that Enneagram is closer to you know, the Jungian archetypes or the Jungian system, the Myers-Briggs, that, that of all the different archetypes in a specific system, that it's giving you the one that you truly connect with. But the power of the seemingly random ones to create identification with a seemingly random story uh, is mysterious to me. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. right. I'll stop there. Okay. And turn it over to you. All right. All right. Thank you. So we thought we'd take a few questions just because since we've had two full days of panels so far, and not all of you were there for both of them, but questions may be accumulating as we go through. And so we thought it'd be good to um, have a, a little bit of time for question and answer before we start the five panel this morning. So any questions that people have been, um, oh, I know I will answer one, one person asked about, so there's, you have this subtype handout that has just a quick description of all 27 subtypes. Um, someone asked, there are some boxes that are shaded and what is the meaning of the shading? Yeah, if you could hold that up, Michael, that'd be great. Um, the shading is the countertypes. So for each of the nine types, there are three versions. And um, one of the things we've tried to highlight in our panels here is the subtypes, partly because since I encountered the version of the subtypes that I teach in 2004, it really feels like it's very important to always include that whenever we're talking about the nine types. The danger, of course, is that um, the topic is complex and nine types is hard enough at the beginning <laughs> if you're new to it. Um, so we don't want to overwhelm you with complexity. Um, however, both for those who are ready for a little more complexity and sometimes just to highlight the three different ways each type can manifest. I think it is important to give you a little bit of information about the subtypes in the beginning, um, partly because it helps you understand that type. Uh, for instance, last time we saw the four panel, and probably some of you noticed that among the people who are all fours, there are some differences um, in the story they told and the energy. And so I think sometimes it's important to highlight that to show these are the different ways that this type can, uh, can manifest. And certainly today with the six panel, that will also be important because the fours and the sixes are the two types among the nine that have the most difference between the three versions, the three subtypes. Yeah. Could you say something about the stacking of the, the subtypes? Sure, sure. So um, my teaching partner and I, Uranio, sometimes I'll refer to we think this, we think that. And so it's not just the royal we. <laughs> it's um, 
Well, I'm speaking in some, some sense for my teaching partner who was going to be here today, but is not here today. Um, and uh, he and I do a lot of workshops and retreats together all throughout the year. And I encourage you to go to my website and if you're interested in taking a course with us because uh, the, work, it, it, the work that we do together, it's like we're more than the sum of our parts. So it, it's been a powerful partnership. And so he, um, I think I've lost the question. <laughs> oh, okay. So he and I have decided that we don't like the word stack. Because in my mind, when I hear the word stack, I think of a stack of books. Uh, and these are energetic drives that are, uh, it's biological energy. And we use the word sequence only because it allows for a little bit more of a, of a uh, envisioning of almost like a dialectic between three energies. Um, and because these three, uh, the instinctual drives for self-preservation, social uh, connection and groups, and one-to-one -one bonding, these are the three instinctual drives that are very much energetic. And one tends to dominate, one tends to be repressed, and one tends to be kind of in the middle. We call that a sequence um, because we think it's it's not so fixed and rigid. It's it, We want to describe a system of energies that's almost in motion. And certainly the Enneagram symbol itself should be seen as being in motion. That's why I like it when the arrow lines are included. Uh, when you have arrows, it's, it's uh, Gurdjieff said that a static symbol is a dead symbol. Uh, so we are always trying to encourage envisioning the symbol itself as being something in motion. And of course, when we identify with one specific personality type, which we all do uh, before we're enlightened, um, it's a way of staying stuck and resisting the natural flow of movement that's happening all around us in nature and in our own human development. So in other words, life is kind of bringing us to other places. Uh, however, when we, we, we naturally, you know, out of fear of survival, kind of stay with what's familiar. Uh, we stay connected to our patterns unconsciously because that's what kept us safe in childhood and we think it's going to keep us safe. So uh, the personality patterns are things that we adhere to as a way of survival, but by adulthood, it, they become self-limiting. So what we're looking at when we do that, when we think about this, uh, uh, the Enneagram types, we're really looking at ways of over-identifying with our personality because, of course, we're more than our personality and then getting sort of stuck and fixed. And that's why we call it being fixated in a specific personality type because we get kind of fixed on seeing things a certain way based on what worked, uh, what makes us feel secure. Uh, but when we do inner work with the Enneagram, it's all about understanding these fixed patterns so that we can loosen them and move beyond them. Uh, this work is all about transcending the personality. Did I answer your question? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay, here and then here. Yeah. Um, could you comment on uh, how do you see, if you see a relationship between Enneagram and attachment psychology, security, and secure avoidance? So I, um, um, this is a little bit related to what uh, Michael said earlier about his history in psychology. One of the first things I noticed, so I, I learned the Enneagram in 1990. Uh, and ended up going back to school, to graduate school, to study psychology starting in 1996. So uh, my, those first five or six years of learning the Enneagram and learning my type 
sent me into therapy, which sent me into a new career. So I realized, wow, I need to become a psychotherapist because I want to really work with this system in a big way. Um, and so when I was going through school, learning all the developmental theories that you learn at, when you're studying psychology, I came over th upon theory after theory after theory that had a really nice uh, uh, overlap with the Enneagram because they were all three-stage theories or three phases. Uh, so you have, uh, for instance, uh, Margaret Mahler talks about, she talks about sub-phases, but her her theory of childhood development, which is based on video recording hours and hours and hours of actual children in a daycare center, um, she found that there were these three big phases, differentiation, um, practicing or testing for danger, and rapprochement, which was about, uh, can I be connected to my parent and still be who I am? Well, these three phases map perfectly on the inner triangle of the Enneagram. Kohut's three needs, um, Karen Horney's uh, three moves. Um, she said that in, in order to meet our needs as children, in order to resolve the kind of basic anxiety that we have as children, we either move toward people, away from people, or against people. And that mm -hmm. the personality types that she described come in those three clusters. Mm -hmm. That fits on with the inner triangle of the Enneagram. Um, uh, Mar uh, Klein, Melanie Klein's uh, had two phases she talked about. And then uh, Thomas Ogden brought a third in. So there's autistic contiguous, paranoid schizoid, and depressive positions. Those map perfectly on the three corners of the Enneagram. So um, I have a paper I've written about that for people who are interested in the minutia of the psychological overlap. Um, but I think with attachment theory, it's not so neat a uh, overlap. Um, I, th I have a friend who is looking into this, and there has been some work done by some uh, Enneagram people. Uh, one person who I saw do a uh, conference presentation on this, her name was Kristen Arthur, uh, and she was in graduate school when she did it, so I think if you looked her up, you could probably find something. My friend who's studying this thinks it's not an easy match, like, okay, if you're anxious, avoidant, you're this, or if you're avoidant, you're this. Um, however, I do think you can find some correspondences. Uh, my friend who's studying it thinks it actually happens at three levels, which is also what happens with Karen Horney. It happens at the level of centers. So, so generally, say we'll say the head types might be characterized as avoidant attachment style, right? And that, but then it happens within triads. So, uh, just like uh, one of the things Naranjo points to is that we might look at the triads as the heart triad as being uh, more emotional, more emotional oriented than the other two triads. Uh, the head triad is being more intellectual, more oriented toward in the intellect. And the body triad as being more action oriented. And of course, that means moving into action and also not moving into action, and in, in depending on which type you are. Um, but then he says, if you look within each, each triad, one of the three is the most action-oriented, one of the three is the most intellectual, and one of the three is the most emotional. So with the heart triad, for instance, um, the three is the most action-oriented, right? And sometimes people will even say, like, threes are heart types because they're so action-oriented. They're doing so much. Um, but really, you're doing threes a disservice if you don't recognize that they are at base emotional types, that they do belong to the emotion triad. However, I like what Naranjo says because then there's this second layer that within the heart triad, they're the most action-oriented. The fours are the most intellectual. 
uh, and you'll often talk to fours and they say they really relate to five and they really relate to being very intellectual and 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 cognitive um, and then twos would be the most emotional so you have emotional emotional for twos and so if we if I had a flip chart I might be writing the the a action oriented types I for intellectual and E for the heart types and then within those you have an I and E and an, and an action oriented and then within the head the, the the head types you have the six being the most action oriented the seven being the most emotional and the five being the intellectual intellectual the most intellectual of the intellectuals and we'll hear from them soon um, and then in the body body based triad um, the the nines would be the most in- emotional of the body types uh, the eight the most action-oriented, and the ones the most intellectual. And it starts to make a little bit of sense because a lot of times if you ask ones what center they think they belong to, it may be someone naive who doesn't really know the Enneagram, they relate to being very intellectual. And certainly my father is a one, and I would have thought he would be intellectual because he's very, very intellectual, very oriented toward learning and knowing, and especially the social five is, is very much that way. Um, so that just gives you, so I think attachment theory, it's a really long answer to that question, is a little bit like that, like it's, there's tiers of it, you know, and so I think there are some connections to be made, but I would just say um, it's not so neat and obvious. Yeah. Yeah, I think we're, yeah, here, and then Steve. So um, sort of connecting to this and to Michael's question, so could you elucidate or sort of fill out, flesh out the debate a little bit between whether a person is born into a, a personality type versus conditioned and socialized? Sure. Okay. So what I'm going to say here, I can't really prove. It's just what I believe to be true. So, you know, take that for what it's worth. Um just like the nature versus nurture debate in psychology is over uh, because the answer has come to be known to be it's both, it's nature and nurture. Um, I think it's a similar thing with the Enneagram and that both uh, interact in creating how our personality ends up expressing itself. However, my belief, and it's just a belief, I can't prove it, is that we come in with our type and probably even our instinctual sequence, probably even a dominant instinct and a secondary and a repressed. Um, Part of the reason I I believe this is I think that uh, you can notice uh, a child's type very early on. Um, I just think that some, it's just really obvious. It's not obvious with all children, and certainly I wouldn't recommend typing children. I think we need to give them time to grow and become who they are. And maybe I think I find that um, that teenagers, uh, some teenagers actually get really interested in the Enneagram. Um, of course, you should never push anything on a teenager. So, but like for instance, when I I was teaching, when I was a counselor at a small alternative high school in the East Bay a number of years ago, I and it, they they encouraged the counselors to teach classes, and so I taught a class on the Enneagram, and so I had like ten you know teenagers in that class, you know sophomores, juniors mostly, and they loved it. They loved it. We typed The Simpsons. We typed <laughs> Winnie the Pooh. Um, I showed them. Uh, a, I showed them a copy of a documentary that Helen Palmer was part of making that was on PBS a number of years ago. It's called Breaking Out of Your Box, and um, and it was funny because I showed them the documentary during one class, but I didn't tell them that I was in it. And so when they got to Type Two, and I was the spokesperson for Type Two, oh, they thought that was the funniest thing ever. So it was really fun for them. And not only that, but 
other students that weren't in my class would hear about the class and come up to me and say, I want a number. <laughs> What's my number? You know? And so I think at a certain point, um, kids get very interested. But I do think that, like, for instance, I just use the example. It's just the personal example I have. I don't have children, but I have a niece and nephew I'm very close to. And my nephew, I could tell he was a nine from day one. Like when he was a toddler, there were things that he was doing that just struck me. Now, again, I wasn't going to tell him that. I'm not fixing him in my mind is that. I think we always need to hold our hypotheses, whether it's for children or anybody, really lightly because we never want to push someone into a box um, or assume that we know their type when maybe we were wrong. Um, but for him, it, I just kept getting sort of like, wow, here's another nine. Here's another, not only nine, but self-pres nine, right? Certain things that he was just, self-pres nines can be a little bit like, a little stubborn, a little bit like I'm not going to do something just because you push me into doing it, you know, not, but not making a big deal about it, not even saying anything, just kind of with their behavior sort of being more grounded. And he was like that. Um, and it's now he's 13 and it's only become more and more obvious that he's a self-pres nine in every, in so many different ways. Even when he was a kid, I mean, you know, it said that nines fall asleep, uh, and they like to sleep and he would, unlike any other kid that I knew. And when he was a little boy, like four or five years old, he'd come up and say, I think I'm ready to go to sleep now. You know, <laughs> it was easy to put to sleep. I mean, it was just all these different things. So. I think that, it, I think we're born with it. I, I, I just think we're not a blank slate. Uh, but then, and here's where some of the spiritual belief comes in. I mean, again, the thing, you don't need to have a spiritual uh, belief or faith to appreciate the Enneagram. You can talk about it completely in psychological terms or completely in practical terms. When I, when I teach, when I bring the Enneagram to teams in business settings, I don't use, I try not to use psychological or spiritual language because I don't want to create any barriers to people accepting the system. Um, but I do think that, um, I think that there is a way that, of course, environment plays a role also in shaping us. Most of us can, like, some, like we've heard on the panels, most of us can look back in childhood and see why the specific type I am actually worked for me as a survival strategy, you know, um, from day one, like in my, the story of my childhood was that I was pleasing and I was, you know, dancing. There's home movies of me like doing a little dance to please the adults, you know, being a two and, um, and, and, you know, just even making space for my mother's emotions and like not really having my own needs. Like you can see that from an early stage. I just think it's both. I think there is a way that we're, we we come in as who we are and then both how we get treated and how we respond to how we get treated, it, it becomes almost a dance of the environmental influence and who we are. Uh, and so it ends up being, we end up being shaped by both. I do think that environment especially plays a role in how fixated we are. In other words, if you had a very difficult childhood, a lot of trauma, um, then your your survival strategy had to be more rigid, potentially. You needed your defenses. So when I've worked with like psychotherapy clients who had a very traumatic background, the work is a little harder because they're, it's harder for them to give up that defense because they needed it, right? And the Enneagram is all about understanding your defensive patterns so that you can relax them and not be so rigidly bound by them. Uh, and I just think that it's natural when we've had a lot of trauma to be uh, to need our defenses more. And so it may take more work uh, to let them go and let them relax. Now, that doesn't mean that 
someone with trauma can't be as healthy or, or as anyone else. Oftentimes, um, Leonard Cohen has a has a song that has a great quote. It's something like, "The cracks are where the light shines through." So it's almost like that's an opportunity if you take it as such. I don't know why it's, that makes me you know, touched, but there is a way that when people really do their work, even if they've had a lot of difficulty in their life. Um, that difficulty is partly the road that gets them to higher higher potential, um, and it, it again it just may take more work, it take a couple few more years in therapy, but oftentimes those people become very healthy. Yeah, just on, I'm sorry, we're gonna that you and I'm sorry, yeah, Nancy. This, well, this oh yeah, this right yeah yeah follows this. that yes. Um, so what about identical twins? Because there's someone here I won't I'll try right. who is an identical twin. And, um, and she and her twin are, are one's two and one's four. Right. Usually they're not the same type, and uh -huh. which I think sort of reinforces my theory that it's more what we're, like who we're born as uh -huh. than what our environment is, right? So in other words, these are individual souls. These are individual people who come in and even though they have the same genetic material, they are who they are beyond that. And so usually you find identical twins do not have the same type. Uh, they usually have different types. Um, some people have said maybe they're connected types like wings or airlines. I don't know about that. I think there haven't been enough study of that. However, I do think that, that that's evidence for, it, for in support of my theory that we come in as who we are, which the genetic, our genetics are only part of who we are. Yeah, there's, there's more than that. Yeah. And Steve. Thank you for answering another question that I had. <laughs> um, and... For a couple of weeks now, I've been thinking about a particular topic um, and wonder what your experience is of it. In what ways may, might the Enneagram be misused? Mm -hmm. Good question. Good question. We can't talk enough when we're talking about the Enneagram about ethics of using the Enneagram um, because it's, it's a powerful symbol. And one of the reasons, if you read some of the spiritual material about the ancient Enneagram and why it was kept secret for so long and um, there's an idea that we're sort of at a moment in history where we need it to be out, out in the world and not so secret. But one of the reasons it was secret is because it's very powerful and it can be misused. And I think we see this a lot where, uh, unfortunately, when people get excited about the Enneagram, sometimes they don't learn the ethics of it. And things like you should never insist or tell someone what type they are. Um, you should uh, be very careful in even stating a hypothesis uh, because what happens is people use it a little bit as a weapon. Uh, like you're just doing that because you're a six, you know, or, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, never, I'll never work with a three again, you know, because they all do this, you know. And so it's very easy to stereotype and generalize. And so we need to see people as people and not numbers. And this is why it's really important to remember that we're not our personality, that we study the Enneagram because we've identified with our personality and we think it's who we are. And so it's really important to always remember you're much more than your personality. And the only reason to learn the Enneagram is to access who you really are because by knowing who you're not uh, and learning uh, how to let go of the patterns and uh, release all of what's beyond, which is why I use the acorn metaphor in my book. We got to break out of the shell and realize that we're actually a potential oak tree and not just an acorn. Uh, but I think there are a lot of ways it gets misused. I think, um, you know, people, so I've heard so many stories, so many stories of people who, um, 
were mistyped for years because somebody told them you're this type. And it was a person who had some authority, maybe an Enneagram teacher, even a famous Enneagram teacher, someone well-known. So that that person was like, wow, this well-known person that I'm attributing a lot of authority to told me I'm this type. I must be that type. And one of the big... um, principles that Uranio and I follow a lot is that we are still decoding the Enneagram. You know, Gurdjieff said that the Enneagram is a system, is a symbol of perpetual motion, uh, that if you know how to read it, it makes books and libraries entirely unnecessary. So that means there's a lot encoded in the system. And we always need to be be very humble about how much we truly understand about it because we only understand a fraction of what I think is possibly encoded in it. And so for that reason, we need to be very humble, but a lot of times people get excited or their ego gets involved. Uh, We were just talking on the way down here about how sometimes what happens in the Enneagram community is the Enneagram's all about rising above your ego, but of course, because of blind spots, because we're always falling back into our ego, sometimes people think they're above their ego and they really aren't, and especially it's dangerous in the Enneagram world or in psychology, you know, therapists, when they think they're beyond their ego, but they really aren't. Uh, and that's why um, humility is a really important thing that's that's always that I'm always trying to remember when we're talking about the Enneagram and why in Dante's Purgatory, humility is the first terrace, right? Mm-hmm. So everybody has to go up the first terrace of humility, which is all about you're not going anywhere unless you have the humility to recognize that you don't know it all. And so I think there is a big danger. I think people get mistyped a lot. You know, I know people who spent 10 years as the wrong type uh, because somebody told them. And and so when I'm trying to help people type people, even if I do a typing interview, I say, I'm going to give you my hypothesis, but you are the one that decides. And please keep that an open process until you're absolutely sure. But sure, in my in my second book, I have a whole I have a section on ethics, and I talk about how it can be used as an excuse or a weapon. Those are the main reasons how it gets misused. And I think sometimes we use it as an excuse. You know, like, well, I'm I'm a I'm a seven, so that's just the way I am. Sorry, <laughs> gonna have to deal with it. Um, and I'm like, like, no, 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 that's not that's not how it goes. It's a seven. I'm a seven, so I can understand the work, my work I need to do, and not. And some people may have to deal with us on the way, but hopefully, we're also taking responsibility and not using the enneagram or enneagram type as an excuse. And again, I think we need to be very careful when even, and especially when we feel really excited about it, which I've felt excited about it for about 30 years, uh, (laughs) we've got to still hold it very carefully and treat it with care and recognize that it's it's got so much power. And we, while while sometimes we want, we're enthusiastic about helping our, the people we know and love gain access to this, um, this power we also need to recognize that it can be misused quite easily. And so it's important not to stereotype. Uh, Michael talked about how people don't want to be put in a box. And of course, the Enneagram teacher's answer to, uh, isn't it putting me in a box, is, is, well, you're already in a box. You just don't know it. And the Enneagram helps you see the dimensions of the box you're in so that you can get out of it. 
that's the answer to that. But of course, we're all, I think we're, we can all fall prey to the tendency to want to feel like we know it all and to be, uh, to overgeneralize or, or say too much with too much confidence what we know and who we think other people are. Uh, so, so yes, thank you for answer, asking that question because it, it makes it, it gives me an opportunity to, to really emphasize this part about how we need to be very ethical in the way that we use it and very careful. And that's why even I'm creating new Enneagram material now. And I noticed, I was just doing, working on this yesterday. I noticed that I'm always using tentative language, like like threes might do this, or you may, they may do this. You know, I don't say, and I had to even correct something about this partner that's creating this material with me. She had said, they believe this. Well, they don't all believe. I mean, we have to be careful by putting someone, to, putting this too hard on people. So whenever I talk about the Enneagram, I try to use tentative language because most, there's big tendencies with each type, but some people outgrow these things. Some people learn and, 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 um, you know, do their work, and we want to always leave room for growth. And I, another bad thing I hear is someone will actually do a lot of inner work on themselves, and their type might not be so obvious because they've really worked on these things. And people say, oh, well, you can't be a four because you're happy, you know. Uh, and it's like, well, I've worked on myself, and I'm owning my happiness, and that's what healthy fours do, right? And so, you know, you see that even a lot on Facebook. So there's really important to recognize we have to leave room for people to grow and not always put them in, in a, under a limitation uh, that that's not what the Enneagram's about. Great answer. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Even if lengthy, yes. <laughs> You've been listening to a TNS episode. This episode is an introduction to day three of the Enneagram panel workshop series. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.